is Carly Vina here. This is episode 290 of App Percussion, and we're getting pretty high in those numbers there. I think around 290, I'm thinking like, that's a big number. Uh, with me today, as usual, our co-host, Ben Charles. Hey, Ben. Hey, Carly. How's your summer? Good. Summer's, summer's good so far. How about you? It's going well. I, uh, I'm just enjoying the warm weather and, and getting some practicing done. So, yeah. Yeah, summer practicing is great. And co-host Ksenia Komianovic is also here. How's it going, Ksenia? Hey, Carly, it's uh, going well. I am not practicing at the moment. I'm in the middle of working on my upcoming album. And uh, that is a lot of hours of sitting in front of a computer, turning into a shrimp, and then trying to de-shrimp myself in the evening by going out and <laughs> standing up straight and so on. De-shrimp. Yeah. Are you are you all finished with the recording portion or are you still still grinding on that? No. So whatever comes out of this album, whether you are amazed at how incredible it is or appalled at how bad it is, I recorded everything in one day. So oh. <laughs> that right of spring will be a special salad. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Was it, did, did you just have people with limited availability or you wanted to do that for some reason? <laughs> I have masochistic tendencies. Uh, no, it's, it was what was available was that one day and my engineer was like, what? It's 35 minutes of music. One day, that's nothing. You can do that. And then afterwards he's like, yeah, I think that was a lot. <laughs> so that's a lot. That's a lot. Well, kudos. We look forward to hearing it. When can we hear it? Um, well, we're hoping for a fall release. We'll we'll see. It's a it's a very slow process, very very slow process of losing your eyes and marbles and all those things in the meantime. And marbles, yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll look forward to it. Um, Ksenia, we are recording this episode on June sixth, but if you're listening on release day, it'll be June twenty fourth. What happened today in history? So all the important stuff. Um, first of all. Let's, let's move backwards. 2011, this uh, album marked my life. Uh, Beyonce released four. I don't know how many of you care, but uh, her fourth album, because she's obsessed with number four. It's, you know, she's born on September four, married on something four and so on. So if you don't know which one that is, that's the one that has that cool song, Run the World Girls. That was my anthem. And I have many, many embarrassing videos from that time of dancing with my girlfriends on my terrace in Serbia and trying to interpret that dance. So that's crazy. Um, all right, so moving backwards, uh, a blogger in 2008 thought it would be a good idea to leak some finished tracks from Guns N' Roses uh, Chinese Democracy album and then received a visit from the FBI and a cease and desist letter. So you don't wanna do that, don't do that. Even if it's Guns N' Roses and nobody else cares anymore about them, just don't leak other people's work early. Um, 1965, this is for Ben. Ben, have you heard of A Spaniard in the Works? A major literary work. I have not. So your favorite John Lennon, I swear, if I find at least one date in the history of time where the Beatles haven't done something, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to call Ben immediately and say, they didn't do anything on this day, but apparently on June 24th, uh, John Lennon released his second book, A Spaniard in the Works. And the book it consists of nonsensical stories. <laughs> Sounds, Sounds on brand. <laughs> so 
So um, that's that. But I think what's most interesting is we have a couple of birthdays. Um, Terry Riley in 1935, happy birthday. Um, famous American minimalist composer wrote in C. And then Harry Parch in 1901. And uh, Ben again talks a lot about Parch all the time. Um, he's the philosophic music man seduced into carpentry, right? That's how everybody calls him. But uh, I just wanted to say, I don't know if y'all have heard of Marimba Eroica. Have you seen it? Oh, yes. Have you played on it? I have not, but no, I've, I've definitely seen it. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's awesome for our listeners who don't know. So this is a gigantic instrument that in Parch's book, Genesis of a Music, he writes that the performer of the marimba eroica should at times convey the vision of Ben-Hur in his chariot. So like, imagine that and then perform like that. Um, but there's a wonderful little video that I wanted to share because I don't want to explain too much. I mean, this is, this is a huge instrument, uh, the lowest pitch of it giving an approximate at F below piano lowest a so it's really really low it's 22 hertz and i just wanted to share a little bit to show our folks what that looks like for those who are watching so we can hardly even hear this tone when we're rehearsing and we get nothing from this one which is super i cannot can you hear it from out there i can barely hear it from here yeah yeah there's no nothing up here but this one sounds amazing anywhere so you need huge huge mallets to play and basically it's so low that it's almost inaudible where you're standing and you have to get on a riser and it's just insanely like the the resonators are eight feet long which is two and a half meters or something it's insane so there you go if you don't know anything about harry parch go check out what he's done with marimba eroica I was just going to mention a couple of things to follow up. We had uh, a couple of at percussion episodes, number 82 with Emil Richards, uh, who actually worked with Harry Parch, and we talked to him about that. And then episode 188, we actually had uh, members from the LA Parch Ensemble on the podcast. So, and they actually showed us some of the entrance. It was really cool. But me, me being a total marimba nerd, has anyone ever heard of Michiko Takahashi? She was a uh, Japanese marimba player, as as my teacher Bill Mersch puts it, the other Japanese marimba player other than Keiko Abe. And she released an album called Contrabass Marimba Explosion. And she had her own contrabass marimba extension built. And it was basically marimba Oroko. It's just these massive bars. And uh, there's pictures of it. It's, it's pretty crazy. Wow. Okay. Have to check that out. That's cool. Did you see in that video how slow the bars were vibrating? Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> huge, huge. It's insane. Cool. Well, thanks, Ksenia. You know, someday you're gonna have to you're gonna have to share with us your Beyonce videos. And I think a while back you were talking about some like spoken word poetry over some minimalism. We're like, you keep you keep. I don't know. We're we're waiting. Maybe over the summer we'll do something. Like that carrot. My embarrassment, my public embarrassment moments. I like to, you know, small chunks, small bits. I can't release them all at the same time. But yeah, like you're just leaving so much to the imagination. That's true. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Right. If could can't be as bad as people might imagine, right? It's it's worse. It's worse. But I'll <laughs> let you. I'll let you think about it. <laughs>
Well, thank you, Ksenia. Without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. Um, Donnie Johns is the founder and executive director of the DMV Percussion Academy. He's also adjunct professor of percussion at Bowie State University in Bowie, Maryland, and the percussion director at Northwestern High School in Hyattsville, Maryland. And just recently, um, back in April, he was elected president of the Maryland Delaware chapter of PAS, and he also serves on the education committee for PAS. Um, he's, it seems like he's played with just about everybody. He's the principal timpanist of the Apollo Orchestra in Bethesda, Maryland in Washington, DC, and is the lead percussionist for Soulful Symphony in Columbia, Maryland. He's played extra with Richmond Symphony, Annapolis Symphony, Maryland Symphony, and many, many more. Um, he is also a proud member of both the Gateways Festival Orchestra in Rochester, New York, and the Color of Musical, uh, Color, excuse me, Color of Music Festival Orchestra in Charles, Charleston, South Carolina, um, which are two groups that spotlight professional Black classical musicians. So, Donnie, it's wonderful to see you, to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. So I thought I thought I'd ask. Um, couple questions about the DMV Percussion Academy. Let's start there. Tell us about the program and, and what's it going to look like this summer? Yeah, so we are entering in our fourth year of having our summer percussion workshop. I started this organization back in 2018, and our mission is to expose, engage, and enrich young people through all forms of percussive art. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, as you uh, mentioned, Carly, teaching and playing percussion. And I've noticed over the course of my career, both as a performer and educator, that oftentimes percussionists tend to sort of be in their little silos or camps, like you kind of have the marimba team over here and the drum set folks over here and the drum line folks over there. And I wanted to create a program or an organization that expose young people to as many different forms of percussion as possible, because I do believe that there's much to be learned in the way of, of just learning about all different styles. Percussion is one of those things where, you know, you can, it's evident in every single culture around the planet. And there's so many different styles and genres, and there are many similarities just as there are distinctions. And I think it's important for us to highlight as many different forms of percussion as we can, be it uh, Caribbean, steel pan, you know, Afro-Cuban, Latin, orchestral music, drumline. And I want to put it all together into a, a series of, of programs for young people. Well, Donnie, I wanted to ask, I was checking out the uh, DMV percussion website and I saw there's 2018 highlights, 2019 highlights, and then 2020 highlights. And I clicked on that thinking like, oh, well, that was probably just like a placeholder and there's going to be nothing there. And I was <laughs> wrong. There is stuff there. So I'm sure that when you started this, you were not uh, anticipating having to deal with a global pandemic. But could you tell us how you adapted and dealt with that? Yeah, sure. You know, we we did our best, you know, <laughs> and um, we, we pivoted like everyone else and, and did a virtual workshop last summer. And all things considered, I'm very, very pleased. Um, you know, I'm very much excited to be back in person this summer, um, you know, playing, doing percussion through a virtual platform, as we all know, um, has its limitations. And so um, I'm grateful that we were able to to put forth a successful product last summer but I'm even more grateful to be back in person. Um, you know, so with my workshop, we have a variety of clinicians that come and present um, for the students and some of our students will play for the clinicians, but then also all the students play in a percussion ensemble. Um, and depending on how many different students we have, we'll have multiple sort of ability grouped or experience level grouped percussion ensembles that will perform at the end of the, at the, end of the camp. And so with the virtual platform, 
you know, the clinics were great. Um, percussion ensemble was more challenging <laughs> trying to work that out through a virtual platform. We did a, a clapping piece um, that ended up, um, you know, being okay, but I'm, I'm back, I'm excited to be back in person to actually perform, you know, in real time. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be a huge relief to be like, this is so much simpler. We can all play at the same time. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, Absolutely. And, and <laughs> admittedly, I'm, I'm not the most um, tech savvy person. Um, you know, I had a technical director who did, who did a great job, um, you know, but it's just it's just easier to do percussion in person, you know? Yeah, yeah. Especially ensemble. Yes, so exactly. What what did kind of the development in the academy look like? This is the fourth year. Are there things like what did you learn along the way that you wish you knew sooner? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, so we've actually I'll sort of start a little bit off topic and circle back to that. We've actually have expanded into a variety of initiatives sort of beyond just the summer workshop. Um, we've kind of gotten into different programs. So for for example, um, I've started drum programs at various schools in Washington, D.C. I've partnered with the D.C. public school system to get programs started up, drum lines and just different drum ensembles for schools that don't have music programs. We partnered up with uh, different community centers and wellness centers, just sort of finding different ways to use drumming and percussion as a sort of medium for promoting wellness in, in, all, in a variety of, and just youth development in a variety of, of facets. Um, as for the summer workshop, you know, it's been taxing, just, it's been um, a good learning process for me in terms of developing my organization. You know, this one week literally takes about a year to organize, just as far as clinicians and recruiting and finding space and instruments and budgets and partnering with the schools and just, you know, uh, picking out music. And, you know, it's really has pushed me in the way of, um, developing my organizational skills, because also, I mean, this organization is growing into a larger part of my overall responsibilities, but I still have to teach and play to you know, pay bills and do other things. And so managing this with my other responsibilities, um, it has been proven to be a, a, a challenge, an exciting challenge, but certainly a challenge. Um, I would say in the way of things that I've learned, um, I've learned that it's important to make these relationships with the schools in the area um, so that when I'm offering my, my programming, uh, different band directors and schools kind of see this as sort of a supplemental and something that can kind of accompany what they're doing with, with the teaching as, as opposed to kind of getting in the way of what they're um, offering their students. I want to kind of come alongside it and be a partner as opposed to somebody that's trying to like kind of bulldoze what they're doing. Um, and so just leveraging those relationships has been something that I've had to learn and um, and develop over the years. Well, I had a question to kind of follow up on this, and it's it's a very prominent issue in music education that was accelerated by the pandemic, and that is access to instruments for percussion students. Uh, and it was already difficult, and then obviously in the pandemic, when everyone just had to stay home, you can do a clapping ensemble, but how many clapping ensembles do people want to do before they before yes. they tire of that? So <laughs> could you tell us about just in general how you how you conquered that before the pandemic, and you know, I guess maybe if the, it's relevant, what what you've done during the pandemic? Yes, I mean, you know, look, I'll be honest. I mean, we've done a lot of drum pad like everyone else, you know, and spent a lot of time, um, you know, working with students, just kind of on snare fundamentals using this time to focus on reading, focus this time on rudiments and things of, of that nature. Um, thankfully, I have access to a great deal of instruments myself, my own personal instruments, 
also instruments at some of my schools. I also work part-time for a local um, backline company, uh, Capital Percussion, that they've also asked given instruments out to students that have needed them in the community as well. And so again, just being able to kind of leverage those relationships um, has really been helpful. You know, a, a lot of doing personal deliveries to students' houses, even apartments, giving them instruments. Okay, you can have this marimba for a couple of weeks, and I got to get it over to this student. You know, this kid can have this vibraphone for a few weeks and get it over to that person. You know, I've kind of had done my own sort of door dash with percussion, so, so to speak. So, you know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no tips, get our though. App, download a marimba, yeah. Right, right. No, no tips yet, though. I'm still waiting on those. No, but you have the benefit of your students are making progress, which is. Yes, there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. That's the greatest tip of all. Thank you, Carla. That's worth it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that was. I just wanted to applaud you for that because that was one thing that that I saw in public schools. Like when everything got shut down, uh, they were like, "No, like the equipment's got to stay at school. Like the, there no pickup, nothing like." It's like, what's like what's your marimba? I know you want to keep everything in good condition, but what's it gonna do in a band room collecting dust? Like send it home. It's it's, <laughs> it's been it. It, it's been frustrating, and I had to um, advocate for that um, kind of strongly in some different circles because you know, look, we already. I believe have sort of biases against us as percussionists, just in terms of, you know, not always being, not always having band directors who are as knowledgeable about percussion as they are their instruments. And so if you're going to take an entire year and deny us access to playing our instruments, you're going to put us even further behind. And so we have to be resourceful and figure out ways to service our percussionists in the same way we're servicing all the rest of the students. You know, at some point it becomes an, an advocacy and and a, a um, accessibility issue that we have to advocate for. Yeah, you know, in so many ways, like this inaccessibility to instruments, like that's always been a problem. And we know that as educators, like kids everywhere are getting yelled at. Why aren't you prepared? Why aren't you keeping up? Like mm -hmm. beginning band, your bell music isn't learned. But it's mm -hmm. like, hey, like, you know, fifth graders can't always stay after school to practice. And exactly. And have something at home. You know, every school's different. Exactly. But, and 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 we know that there are challenges. You know, I spent ten years as a band director myself in elementary and middle school, and so I'm well aware of of the perspective of a band director. My thing is, we work towards kind of bridging those gaps and servicing students who have accessibility issues in other ways, in other you know, be it cognitively or developmentally, physically, what have what have you. So let's put as much effort into servicing our percussionists who may have accessibility issues as well. So let's just put the effort into it like we do everything else. Yeah, it's important. I think I think a lot of these changes are, you know, we're we're starting to have more conversations and hopefully some of these things are lasting, like being willing to send instruments home or, you know, even small practice instruments. Donnie, Absolutely. I want to circle back just for a second um, before we leave talking about the academy. Is registration still going to be open on June 24th? Yes, it will be. Yes, it will be. Um, we begin on June 28th, but we're taking registration will be open right up until the first day. So uh, students and parents can register at dmvpercussion.org. Again, dmvpercussion.org. Awesome. We'll put it in the show notes, too, so people can find it. And it's um, open to what, middle school, high school? Yes, yeah, students in grades 6 through 12. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned one other thing on on kind of your activities with DMV percussion and you mentioned that it's been a medium for promoting wellness. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about what that's looked like for you. 
Yeah, so actually we have sort of expanded our initiatives beyond just working with young people. Currently I'm working with the Director of Veterans Affairs for Prince George's County. Prince George's County is a suburban county right next to Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And um, we've been working at developing programming for uh, military veterans who are dealing with anxiety, depression, even forms of trauma and PTSD. We're seeing how drumming and drumming activities can actually work towards um, promoting, sort of quelling some of the anxiety and depression, just helping to promote wellness. You know, we know it's not a silver bullet cure-all, we're not promoting it as such, but we have found that just being involved in music activities, particularly drumming and percussion, has been, has served sort of a soothing um, benefit for uh, military veterans. We also have partnered with um, a community center in Washington, Southeast Washington, D.C. Um, it's an area that has has its challenges sort of um, socioeconomically. And there's a, a community center called the Trayon Community Center. And it's for students who have specifically been affected by gun violence. They've had um, family members that have tragically um, been a victims of gun violence. And so we've gone in there and presented free drum classes, free drum programming, and it's been very, very successful. The students, the community, the families enjoy it very much. And so it's just, it's really fulfilling to be, to use drumming and percussion sort of beyond just concerts and performances and see how music really can deeply affect people's lives, especially those who, who, who need it most. That's so great to hear that it, it sounds like really meaningful, important work beyond let's get really good at our craft and practice exactly. a whole bunch and help help train others to do that. That's exactly. And, and I'll say too, just as a quick point, I think that's kind of where we need to head moving forward. Not that other, not that we haven't already been doing that in certain areas, but you know, oftentimes we're trying to find kind of relevancy in what we do. And we're often trying to find funding and support. And so I think the more that we can connect our gifts and our talents with larger themes and larger issues, the more we can find support, relevancy, and fulfillment for ourselves. Donnie, I, I, when I read your bio, I thought, okay, you must be 175 years old to accomplish all of this. Smoking mirrors. I mean, you're you're kind you're kind of a miracle, um, and I am I'm still I'm just so amazed at the amount of energy that you have and all the stuff that you do and how much giving back to the community that you do is is just amazing. I just thank you. That's okay. I'm I'm from Serbia. It's okay. Oh uh, yeah, thank thank you very much. I appreciate it. I mean, and and I have to say, you know, um, I'm developing more more and more of a team. Um, I have other associates. I've been teaching now for. I got 16 years or so. And so some of my students now have gone on to college, come back now are adults and are helping out as interns. And so it's, it's you know, the team is expanding. So it's, we've been able to do more because I have, you know, more, more resources. So it's really been great. That's amazing. Um, so we had a Instagram question from Jake uh, who asked, what has been the hardest part of your career? The hardest part? Wow, that's a great question. Um, Honestly, I'm the kind of person where um, kind of just as you were saying, you know, I like having my hands in a lot of different things and, you know, uh, inevitably, you know, you can't do everything right. And so I was just talking to a friend of mine a few days ago. Sometimes I have to take time to figure out, you know, sometimes you have to set aside the, the good for better things. Right. And so I'm the kind of person that always wants to do 
I want to play here and I, I want I want to fundraise over here and I want to teach over here and I want to, you know, business develop over here and whatever. And so like literally, you know, inevitably you can't do it all. So just being able to leverage my time, leverage my um, abilities and kind of leverage just the goals that I want to accomplish, you know, just figuring out what is of first importance. Everything has some level of importance, but what is the first importance, right? And so just managing time and priorities has been has been an ongoing challenge. So how do you handle that? Any special books or coaches or people that have inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, definitely just the people I surround myself with. Um, you know, I try to surround myself with people that 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 are that are leaders, people that are wise, people that that can kind of pour into me. Um, you know, I, I am blessed to have a great family, close circle of friends. Um, and just trying to, to find time, no matter how busy I am, to find time to just kind of get away, decompress, you know, just rest, pray, just kind of just find time for myself. And I find that the better I take care of myself, the better I'm fit to help serve and, and, and do for others. I, I think when I was younger, like I'm, I'm 37, it's like in my 20s and kind of in my early 30s, I would, I would burn out a lot because I didn't do that. Whereas now I'm learning, okay, like self-care is just as important as everything else. And it actually everything else flows better when you take care of yourself. Do you think that finding the balance, like kind of, you know, juggling different projects and taking care of yourself, has that seemed easier in some ways through the pandemic or more challenging? You know, selfishly, selfishly, yes, it actually has been. I mean, I thank God my family's been healthy. No one close in my close family or friends has been affected, you know, directly by, by COVID. And so um, for me, it's given me time to really kind of pause and reflect in a lot of ways and sort of re regroup, kind of organize, figure out, you know, what my goals are moving forward. Um, you know, m money got tight. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, you know, gigs were pretty much half my income. So when gigs went away, that was like half my income. Um, thankfully teaching, kind of held me over, but, um, you know, things did get tight. But what it also did is it gave me time, like I said, to sort of plan and organize. And a, a lot of the business growth that I've had uh, with DMV has, has, has occurred through this pandemic, having time to really sort of apply for grants, um, get different uh, donors, um, build out a board, strategically plan, et cetera. So. This, uh, this how do you do all this stuff question comes up a lot with with percussionists like yourself that have their own playing career and a teaching thing and a rental thing. And yeah. it always like reminds me of the, the famous quote, I, I say, I feel like every other episode by Leonard Bernstein, but to achieve great things, two things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time. And yeah, it's like, exactly. yeah, you just do it. That's all, that's all yeah. there is to it. You, you know, and, and I've always been a very sort of driven person. I, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm passionate about what I do. I enjoy it. You know, and so as you guys can all, all know too, as musicians, you know, when you enjoy what you're doing, it, it, it drives you all the more. It's still work, you know, but but it's but it's more you're more energized about it, you know. Well, Donnie, I was looking over your bio and I noticed that you play in something called the Gourmet Symphony, and I am such a a food fan that that yeah. I had to to deep dive on that a little bit. So I have a little topic to uh to talk about today and then i'd love to hear about your work with that group um sure. so 
I found an article from the publishing house called Gestalten, and the article is called How Music is Creating New Cultures Around Food. And if you Google that, you can find that article. Um, but the article begins and it says, understanding your purpose is especially important in the restaurant world. Anybody can make a similar menu, but the purpose is what makes a restaurant stand out in a fierce crowd. And so the article explores two stories from their, their new book called Delicious Places that focuses on the purpose of excuse, excuse me, music in the food world. And sort of the, the thesis of the article is you've probably never selected a venue because of the music, but you've perhaps you've left because of it. And so there's a, a Japanese composer named Ryuichi Sakamoto, and he visited a restaurant in Manhattan called Kajitsu. It's a Japanese vegan restaurant in Manhattan that focuses on cuisine based on the principles of Buddhism from the 13th century. And so Sakamoto, this uh, composer, got in touch with the chef of the restaurant, Hiroki Odo, and he said that the food was as good as the beauty of a thousand-year-old Japanese villa in Kyoto, but the music was, and I quote, like Trump Tower. <laughs> he said uh, he did some digging on it and the music had been selected by management in Japan and so Sakamoto proposed that he would make the playlist for the restaurant for free uh, so that he could continue to eat there and enjoy their food uh, and so the the chef brought it up to management and they agreed and the article says he originally planned for an ambient playlist but ended up selecting warm and upbeat music and when I listened to the playlist uh, that's on the website it still sounded pretty ambient to me. It, it includes works by John Cage, Arvo Part, and Aphex Twin. And the other space examined in this article is called Spiritland in London. Um, and it it wasn't really clear to me. Maybe someone else that read this understood it better. But uh, from what I could tell, it sounds like it's a restaurant and recording studio during the day. And then in the evening, the recording studio area converts into a bar. That's the best that I could understand it from this article. Uh, and it's in London, and their, their goal is to preserve London's unique music scene. And so I kind of, after reading this article and getting inspired, I dug a little bit more, and I found some actual scientific research about the impact of music on dining. And so I wanted to point out two things. One, there's an article from the Journal of Consumer Research in 2014, and it found, among other things, that slow music could reduce groups from leaving before seated, increase food and bar purchases, and increase the gross margins of a restaurant. Uh, and then the other thing that I found was a 2015 study from the Journal, excuse me, Journal of Sensory Studies, and it found I quote, cross-modal correspondence. Uh, so for example, high-pitched sounds are associated with sweet and sour tastes. Low-pitched sounds and dissonant sounds are associated with bitterness. Staccato sounds are associated with crunchiness and legato sounds are associated with creaminess. So for example, in a study, participants that tasted chocolate while listening to a higher pitched soundtrack actually thought that it tasted sweeter than those who did not. And there's a, a British chef by the name of Heston Blumenthal. Uh, he has a restaurant called Fat Duck and he was fascinated by all of this. And so he actually created an experience called Sound of the Sea. And so the dish is uh, sashimi. And then there's a sand, which me being a culinary person, I think he uses uh, tapioca maltodextrin powder to, to make a fat into a, a sand-like substance. And a saltwater-inspired foam, which I think he probably uses soy lecithin for that. And it's served on a box that has a glass top and sand underneath. And they bring it out also with a conch shell. And inside the conch shell is an iPod with a pair of headphones. And when you put them on, you can hear sounds of the sea. And so if you're watching this on YouTube, 
Uh, let's see here. I can share this. There we go. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see this. Um, this is an actual picture of the dish right here. And if you scroll down on this page, it tells you a little bit about this. And uh, this is the little soundscape sound of the sea that you listen to when you're you're dining on this. I'll be quiet so you can hear it for a minute. So anyway, that's that. I thought it was interesting. I'm I'm into the whole like ambient noise, Brian Eno sort of music for airports thing. Um, but Donna, you play in this group called uh, Gourmet Symphony, and it sounds like maybe not to that scientific level, but but there is a sort of pairing of, of music and and food and wine. Could you tell us about that group? Sure, absolutely. Um, and so the group actually has um, at least currently sort of dissipated. The director uh, took on a different post now. He's no longer in the in the D.C. area. Um, but I played with the group for, for a handful of years and it was a really unique and really fun experience, kind of like you were talking about with that article. It, it paired various styles of classical music with various styles of food. And so um, we would have these and it was a very much kind of a more of an intimate more of an informal um, performance atmosphere. And so you would have the musicians sort of be in the center of a, a center of a, of a circle and all the different participants or the patrons would dine around the orchestra and you, you almost sort of in the orchestra. So it was a very kind of intimate, um, sort of close, uh, close setting. And um, you'd have multiple courses and each course would pair with a various classical music piece, not an entire symphony, maybe one movement of a work or one X of a work. And so you weren't listening to an entire, you know, two, two and a half hour symphony performance. It was maybe a 45 minute, maybe an hour, what you would typically do in a dining experience. And, and it was fun. It was a way for people to experience music um, sort of out of the box, um, informal. You know, the musicians would ask us or the People that were dining would ask us questions in between pieces and we would talk, we would converse, we would we, it, we would take breaks in the middle and actually have a course. We, we would sit down at the table and have a course with some of the people that were dining. So it's very much kind of an interactive and sort of intimate um, entertainment experience. So it was a lot of fun. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I've done, um, or I went to a concert. I remember when I lived in Hong Kong, there was a beer pairing with percussion. Oh, uh, cool. Concert. Yeah, there was a percussionist, or there is a wonderful percussionist there, Karen Yu, and she brews, brews her own beer, I believe, with her partner even. And we went to this little place and we had seven, I think, types of beer in front of us with a little menu. And it told you, you know, this one goes with cage. This one goes with yeah. this, this one goes with that. Um, I'm not a beer connoisseur, sadly. I think that was that experience was partly wasted on me, but really <laughs> interesting to think that, you know, oh, chocolate notes in this beer should really go well with Lou Harrison. <laughs> like, Look, sign me up. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. This is just so cool. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about like movement and how visually what people see when they hear you can affect how they hear what you're playing. And 
now I'm just thinking about like food in a whole other way. When I read this article, Ben, I was really like, oh, okay. Like thinking about background music at restaurants. Like this is kind of like that time that Ben made us all talk about hold music for a while. <laughs> like, <laughs> but no, now that you're connecting and I'm like, wow, like what if you're listening to something like, what did you say? Crunchy is associated with staccato. Like Crunchy is, a, yeah, yeah. And like beyond just the musical connection, they, one of the things I read said they put headphones on people and basically it would change the sound that they heard when they when they ate food so it would make your crunchy food sound less crunchy and people thought the food was stale even though it was the same thing which is just so so weird <laughs> it's so cool it's so awesome and i've never thought about this that's crazy but when you played when you played that little excerpt of what the sea sounds like because not all of us know ben um i thought immediately how it slowed me down if i had been eating like a burger like crazy i'd be like oh i gotta i gotta chill i can't i can't be out of time with what's going on in my ears <laughs> uh, well donnie since we got to talk a little bit about your experience with gourmet symphony i did want to ask you because you've played like with so many different groups and different styles of music orchestra gigs and musicals and playing with churches mm -hmm. um what have been some highlights for you with your your performance career oh man that's that's an awesome question um i think um playing with the group soulful symphony we played for the opening of the um, African-American History Museum um, in, in Washington, D.C. in 2000, uh, gosh, a few years back, maybe 2014, I think. And if, um, that, yeah. If I, could, if I could interrupt, is that the, the thing that Quincy Jones put on? So, so, so it's uh, led by a guy named Darren Atwater and it's, um, okay. yeah, it's uh, been around for about, but, yeah. Sorry, I meant, I meant no, that, that event, the, the opening of the museum. Um, so, I believe he was involved in, they had sort of like a week long opening sort of festival event. And I, he was involved in that. He was okay, gotcha, yeah, cause I, portion, just, but. I just watched the Quincy documentary on Netflix a few weeks ago and they, they had, yeah. that, I think it was that event on it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're right. You're right. That's right. Yeah, it was, it was just so cool on that event. Like they were like having trouble getting a hold of Oprah and Quincy just picks up, Oprah, I need you at yeah, this thing. Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think too, I'm trying to think, you know, I'll, I'll say, so back at the University of Maryland in my sophomore year, we, I played in the symphony orchestra and we did a week long side by side with the national symphony and we did, um, Ravel's, um, Daphis and Chloe. And I remember that week was really when I knew that I wanted to be an orchestral percussionist. Like I grew up, you know, high school and first couple years of college heavy in the drum line and playing in concert band. And I love those experiences, percussion ensemble and all that. But um, just that week has always, that that was like the, the light bulb, you know, moment for me where this, this is what I want to do, you know? And so um, that's always been kind of a special week. And I, it's very early in my career, obviously a sophomore in college, but that's something that really kind of sparked me wanting to, um, be a percussionist and, and be primarily an orchestral percussionist. That's so cool. Sometimes you think about, you know, we've all done probably some kind of side by side or, or just like educational outreach, these things where we meet students and to know that some of them are going to have that like aha moment. Yeah, you absolutely. Like, like you did, like playing your, your side by side with NSO. And yeah. Like, oh, okay. Like, it just clicks. Yeah, just 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 being a part of just that amazing sound. Of course, the Ravel piece is beautiful in the depthness, but just you know having that experience um, is something that that like I'll never forget. So yeah. 
Well, that's awesome. Well, what, what's your, what's your best freelancing advice? What's your secret sauce? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I think, um, I hate to sound so generic, generic, but it really is true. Just, just leveraging relationships, you know, um, in the DC area, there are a lot of great percussionists. This is with the military bands and just, just the culture around here. Um, there's a lot of great drummers and percussionists all over the place. And there are a good amount of gigs in the area, but we definitely have way more players than we do gigs. And so what's going to distinguish a person from getting a job from someone who doesn't is how you treat people, you know, your level of respect, professionalism, you know, not being a jerk, you know, being organized, being prepared, but just being respectful, you know, not being a know-it-all, um, you know, just being a team player. You know, I've been in situations a lot of times where, you know, a guy's playing in an orchestra, maybe he's an extra, he's new or, or what have you, and he's trying to like go back and forth with the principal player about, you know, how a cymbal crash should sound or go back and forth with the conductor, who cares? Like you just, you know, just do your job and, you know, know, know your position in that moment, right? And, and you'll get, you can get called more. And so just leveraging relationships. And also I will say, just being versatile, you know, um, in college, again, like I was saying before, and this is another reason why I, I'm so adamant about getting this across to my students, you know, yes, at some point you may want to pick a particular area that you prioritize, but even still, you know, if you want to be a working percussionist, you know, know how to play drum set, know how to play timpani, know how to play xylophone, know, know a little bit of Latin, you know, Afro-Cuban styles, you know, be a versatile player. And the more versatile you are, the more work you'll get. Yeah, that's great advice. You can't, can't go wrong with that. You know, and everybody has their strengths and weaker areas or areas of interest too. But especially if you want to be able to like pick up your phone and say, yes, I can do that. Take in yes. as much as you possibly can. And I also say kind of along with that too, just try, try to go the extra mile. So for example, you know, if you're playing in a section and you're given a particular part, see if you can, you know, just be familiar with everybody's part. I've been in situations before, especially when I was younger, where like a guy gets sick or somebody else, you know, can't make it and you have to pivot and play someone else's part. And so just being ready to do that, being ready to pivot and, and just be solutions to an organization's pro problem, whatever that may be, being versatile, being ready to step up, being ready to kind of improv and, and handle things on the fly. People remember that. Donnie, you're definitely not, what did you say, 37? 137. <laughs> I can't. I, you, you, see, you see the grays, that, that's why you say, see, I got a couple of grays in there. So. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the issues of social justice and um, perhaps you'd tell us uh, a bit about what you think the state of percussion and classical world is in terms of racism and, and social justice. Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, I have been pleased to see uh, what appears to be a sort of a genuine desire to 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 right some wrongs and just be more of an, an inclusive community. I, I think, honestly, I believe that percussionists can be the ones to really sort of pioneer this. I mean, the way I was in, in the music community, because um, as I was saying earlier, you know, percussion exists, drumming and percussion exists in every single culture on the planet, you know? And so it's almost, well, for, well, be, in addition to obvious reasons, it's also kind of ridiculous to, to, to be a percussionist and be sort of anti 
diversity or, or be almost sort of like, you know, uh, an imperious or elitist or what have you, because literally, you know, we can all learn from every single culture, um, you know, on, on this planet. And so I, I have seen, I think through Progressive Art Society um, and other uh, the drum companies and organizations, a, a concerted and, and seemingly genuine push um, to be more inclusive and, and, and diverse. Um, I think that's obviously very important. I think it's also important um, for uh, black percussionists, black musicians, to sort of take our own agency and 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 feel confident to lead out our own organizations and not and not think that we have to always wait for um, certain doors to be open. You know, I, I'm all for inclusion. I'm all for you know um, working together and all those things. In addition to that. We also need to need to boldly um, pioneer our own initiatives and and see to it that things get done, um, you know, from our own doing. And so that's you know one of my reasons why I've started my organization and and things like that. You know, I want to continue to be collaborative and partner and be inclusive, but I'm also going to do the job myself too. And that's that's. Uh... The, the main difference that's so important and I'm glad that you said that the big difference between somebody like waiting for an opportunity and somebody who's you know has a percussion academy and you know kind of runs their own organization is just like that you've done it you know you didn't wait yeah. for somebody else to say hey I want to pay you to do this for my organization right exactly exactly and then oftentimes um careful how I say certain things. So you can be in those positions and, and, and really affect real genuine change. Sometimes you can be in those positions and sort of just be a token and kind of just perpetuate what's the status quo, what's already been going on, right? So it's like, okay, you know, we have this broken system. And so for some people, they think the solution is to put a black face out in front of the, of the broken system. And so we're good now, it's, everything's broken, but we have a black face in front of it. So it's all good now, um, that doesn't work. Um, for me, and it shouldn't work for anyone else. Um, I can get I can get a lot more into that, but uh, maybe on a different podcast. <laughs> That's fine. Well, thanks thanks for sharing what you did. I think yeah. I agree with you. I think I see things moving in right directions all over the place. You know, especially I agree. Country. I agree. A lot of conversations are happening that weren't happening before. You know, one year ago, even five years ago, or ten years ago. Um, I, I absolutely agree with that, and I think. You know, uh, opportunities like this are, are, are amazing. I, you know, it, ne it needs to be collaborative, you know, where, where we're genuinely, um, you know, desiring the, the thoughts and ideas of everyone, right? As opposed to just telling people what they should be doing. Actually, you say, hey, let, let me listen. What, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas? And, and we're genuinely, you know, collaborating and speaking and listening to one another. Yeah, I agree. And it's not it's not it's not easy it's not yeah it's usually messy there's sure this. sure absolutely absolutely well thanks thanks for the work that you're doing um thank you thank you for and i thank you for highlighting it i really do appreciate that yeah yeah donnie i do want to ask you a little bit about your your teaching at Bowie state and at northwestern high school and you know i know for many years you taught at dc dc youth orchestra that's right that's right um, 
and I taught there what for about a year, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so much teaching, and, and you mentioned you were a band and orchestra director for ten years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Feels like it was a long time ago, but it was like six years ago. So yeah, <laughs> it was like a lifetime ago. <laughs> I guess it, it, it really now. does. It really does. Um, so you've, you've got so like a wide, wide variety of experience. Um, I guess I, I want to ask you, how do you think that we as percussionists can help kind of bridge the knowledge gap between what non-percussionist educators know, like in their band classrooms, mm -hmm. um, or general music classrooms, and what we know that their percussion students need? Yeah, that's another excellent question. It's something that I am going to, along with my team now, really kind of going to make a very concerted push. Um, this upcoming year, and also with being like president of the Maryland Delaware chapter of, of PAS, um, we want to partner with the local organizations, the State Music Education Association, um, public school systems, and and get into these schools to help uh, band directors to help equip them to be more effective and, and knowledgeable percussion educators. You know what happens is I was speaking this a little bit before. And I, I'm actually partnered up with the Maryland State Department of Education um, with this very initiative to get different workshops and programs, again, not just for students, but also for educators. And what I'm working on now, um, oh, the cat, let the cat out of the bag, whatever. I'm working on actually setting up potentially accredited courses so band directors can, can learn more about how to become better percussion educators, but the, the incentive for them along with just being better pedagogues is also they can potentially get professional development continuing education credits. And so I want to set up a series of workshops for them, because what often happens, as, as I'm sure we all know, I'm sure you guys have all been percussion specialists in, in some regard and probably still are, you know, a lot of times most band directors are far more knowledgeable in woodwinds, brass, strings than they are in percussion. And if percussionists are being taught by an educator who is ill-equipped to teach them, then, then what you have is an implicit learning bias happening in that classroom. And so I don't say that to, to scold or, or demean band directors. I know how much is on their shoulders and I know how overwhelming it is having, having been one. But what I'm saying is that is a glaring problem and we need to come in and kind of bridge that gap and, and serve as that and be that solution. That's so important, especially with the professional development credits and everything. But even just just kind of being able to make contact and, you know, hey, these yeah. resources are here and here's things that can really help. Um, then it goes from I think a lot of band directors feel like I've got these kids in the back of the room and right. don't know what to do with them. I just try to keep them out of trouble. Right, right. And, and we need to make sure that we are making ourselves visible and available uh, to these band directors. Um, and they also need to get off their hides and, and take advantage of these resources as well. It's two way street. Well, and so another really important, I think, aspect of that is, is the, the education of future educators, right? And do you teach, do you teach percussion techniques or percussion methods? So, so I am, um, we're letting all cats out of the bag this podcast. So I'm going to be at UMBC this fall doing, right. percu doing percussion methods, um, at, uh, there. So, so yes, I will be starting this fall. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, so I, I'm already sort of planning ideas around that. And look, I mean, it's once a week for a semester. So you know, we all know you, you can't um, give students the, 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 the bevy of the world of percussion in, in a semester. But what I want to do is, you know, 
in addition to teaching as many different elements as I can, I also want to leave them with um, sort of a, a well or a repository of resources that, that they can draw from as they go on into their careers, you know, just different contacts, different resources, um, so they know where to look when they need to. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing I always try to stress with that class is like, please don't think you're going to be bothering me if you have a question in a year, like you want to know what kind of timpani heads to buy or yes. like everything. Hey, can you come yes. in for a session? Like, I, I, I'd be happy to, because again, it's like, you know, it, it's all about the students. And I mean, you know, the students need to receive the same level of instruction, high level of instruction that all the rest of the, um, the non-percussionists are receiving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and one other thing, I, I think probably we've all seen PASIC this year is $60 for registration, which is like, that's pretty amazing talking that's, about it. That's awesome. I've already registered. That is, that is awesome. It's so cool. It's so good. <laughs> I think it's a relief to everybody, um, but maybe that's a maybe that's an opportunity too for some of these non-percussionist band directors and educators to go and get get professional development credits and get some information. That that's an excellent idea. You know, I didn't even think about that. That's something that that I need to I need to promote. So yes, I mean that's something <laughs> that because it's so cheap this year, especially you know, come on. And also with some of these educators, you know, if they make it a priority, you know, in some areas the schools will help with you know support you know as far as getting them there and that sort of thing is you know if, if it's if it's seen as legitimate professional development which it certainly is right yeah yeah that's great um you know so we've talked a little bit about accessibility and and all these things and you mentioned um or, or i think i read in your bio that you've served on some grant reviewing panels um, and I'm wondering if you've noticed kind of patterns or what kind of qualities um, or, you know, kind of total package preparation do you see on proposals that are successful? Yeah, you know, um, that's a whole world in and of itself. And yeah, I've served on different grant reviewing panels in DC and Maryland and uh, Prince George's County. And, and I've, I've been applying, I've applied for grants myself. One of the things that I did over the pandemic was begin to apply for a lot of different grants for the organization, and and we were able to we won a few small ones. Um, we were rejected by a lot of them, and that's of course part of the process. Um, I, I think I applied for probably, gosh, maybe eighteen grants, um, and and we won we we won three. You know, so um, I did a lot of that over the over the pandemic, and even now. Um, so, but yeah, to answer your question, I think look, organization. <laughs> Um, is very, very important. And so what I've had to learn, so um, in my experience is, you know, the content of what my organization delivers as far as the instruction, the performance is, the, the content aspect is 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 cool. It, it, it's good, it's on point. Um, what I've had to learn is for as much as, they, as that is of value, what's of equal and sometimes even more value, you can debate the merit in that, but is just kind of the, Organiz structural organization around like your budgeting and your programming and, and demographics of who, who's going to be affected by what and all these just charts and spreadsheets and crap I don't care about that's why I've had to hire other people to kind of help do that for me but but a lot of these a lot of these panelists are not always um, musicians and so they tend to they will often look at um, non-curricular or non-content related aspects of your organization which again which are important i mean budgeting you know um just kind of the, all the organizational aspects um you know uh, insurance and 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 all these different types of things are very important you know um and so 
I guess to answer your question, the, the non-musical aspects have to be just as put together um, as the musical aspects. They want to line items to a T for every single, you know, how you're going to spend this money, you know, if we give it to you, what other supporting mechanisms do you have in place? How much are they giving you? What are you, what is that going towards? And so just all the sort of the business and structural aspects just beyond or outside of music are just as, if not more important. And, and I, I've... It's been somewhat of a frustrating process, but, I, but I'm learning that that's a necessary aspect of it. And I'm also learning, like I said, you know, to bring on other people that are more, um, you know, uh, more uh, savvy and more skilled with the budgeting and accounting and PowerPoints and stuff that I'm not good at. Um, I think this is a really important skill. And again, learn about it for those young ones who are listening. Yes. Learn about it as much as you can. Learn from wiser ones and then let wiser ones, if you have them around you, do it for you. <laughs> Absolutely. All your friends that are majoring in business and finance and accounting, like hang on to them. You know, <laughs> they may not be cool now, but 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 they're going to be super cool in 10 years. Hang on to them. All right, Make like, friends with nerds. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. 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 There you go. Um, but I was going to say a, a piece of advice from from me, uh, and I did a lot of this grant writing myself. Is if you go through the hurdle, and trust me, the first one that you write is usually the worst, and and it takes the longest time. Do not end up submitting just for one grant for that cycle because you've already done the work. Recycle what you did there and apply for another grant because you've already figured out the programming and everything that you need for that year's project. Apply for 18 because to get three out of 18 is huge. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Apply yeah. For as many as you can. I think that, that, that is awesome advice. Um, and, and I learned that about halfway through. I was spending, you know, all these weeks and months putting together these grants and like an idiot, like not saving any of it. And then another grant comes along and it's asking me for the same thing. I'm like, I should just save what I had. So, yeah, that's excellent advice. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. You know, <laughs> learn. Things we learn along the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, congratulations on the grants that you did win. Um, oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. It's great and, advice. And, and what that's what that's been able to do. I'm sorry. What that's been able to do is um, just allow for us to offer more scholarships to, to students that um, can't afford some some of the programs that we offer. You know, um, many of our programs are free of charge. But I mean, you know, but we also need to charge for certain things as well. And so um, these grants, a lot of these grants, a lot of the money that we get from these grants goes to giving students scholarships to be a part of the programs that do cost money. That's awesome. Making things happen is I think it's it would be easy just to be like, here's the tuition. Here's, you know, like make it happen. Like, I don't have any more money to give, but no. Yeah, do it. Right, exactly. That's great. Yeah. Hey, Ben, I think you have something. Yeah, before we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of tie up a loose end from earlier because then you was talking about that marimba eroica and I did just a little bit of Googling while we were talking uh, and I found I mentioned Michiko Takahashi. So this is her playing her contrabass marimba. You can see there's a regular marimba on the left side and then the contrabass marimba with these massive resonators and William Mersch talked about this in a little lecture he did for Beverly Johnston. And there's also, if you go on YouTube, and her, her name is actually spelled very phonetically, Michiko Takahashi. Uh, you can just Google that on, or search that on YouTube. And there's actually a video of her performing. And uh, you can hear a little bit of the sound of this thing. 
so yeah, just a, a really little clip, but Bill Mersch was at that recital, I think it was in Carnegie Hall, um, but he said it, you couldn't so much hear it as feel it. He said, whenever she hit a note, it just sounded like a truck drove by. So really, really interesting, bizarre instrument. She also plays a, uh, a she calls it a glass harmonica, I think, but it's really more like a, a glass marimba. Really, I, I don't know, just a marimba player that I feel like hasn't, isn't such a big name in the US, but is a big name in Japan. That's so cool. Yeah, I feel like with that recording, we're hearing a lot of the highs and I'm sure it, judging by how it- Yeah, looks, YouTube audio maybe isn't the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's probably better not through Zoom, but hopefully people can check it out. Well, thanks, Ben. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much, Donnie, for joining us today. It's awesome to see you again and chat with you. Um, and thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ksenia. We'll see you on the next episode. My pleasure. Thank you all.